Well, thank you, Howard and worship team, for just leading us in songs of worship that point us to just the greatness of God and just his love for us. Uh, it's very good to be here with you this morning. It's good to see you. Uh, it's my joy and privilege to be able to bring God's word to you. And uh, yes, as uh, some of you have asked, uh, yes, it is my first uh, sermon that I am preaching to you officially as an assistant pastor of this church. It's such a joy uh, for me to be able to be able to stay home, to be uh, here with the church that I love. So uh, very, very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, but as we speak about love, let's uh, turn into our Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter uh, 4, verses 7 to 12. We're going to be talking about the love of God today. It's a very familiar passage, but it's a, it's a one that is good for us to be reminded of as well. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. 1 John 4, uh, verse 7 to 12. The word of God reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning to worship you freely in your church with your people. And we pray that as we study a familiar passage, as we study a passage that many of us have probably come to know and and, uh, even recite to each other. We pray that, Lord, you would help us just to see the depths of the truths that you want us to see this morning. May you impress upon our hearts all that your word has to say, and may we grow, therefore, in our love for one another. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. We pray that you would uh, just bless the preaching of your word, honor yourself as we study. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the topic of love within Christian circles, it can be both overrated and underrated in Bible studies and sermons. It can be overrated in the sense that some people have an overemphasis on the importance of love, and that leads them to downplay the importance of every other doctrine. It it leads them to downplay the importance of other aspects of God's character. And when an overemphasis of love happens, when it appears in our understanding of the gospel— What happens is we're tempted to avoid teaching about what God says in regards to sin. We're so worried about offending other people that what we'll do is we'll just push sin and the sin nature of man off to the side. And we'll basically say, oh, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. You know, what really matters is that you understand that God loves you. And I think what we, what uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid people feeling guilty. We're trying to avoid people feeling guilty uh, uh, over their sin. And so we just bring love to the forefront and hoping, and we hope that, there, that people are so overwhelmed by the love of God that they just believe because they want to feel love. They want to feel wanted. And you know, at its most extreme, an overemphasis of, of love may lead to an attitude that basically says, why do I need doctrine? 
Why do I need to go to the church? Why do I need to study theology at all? It doesn't matter, does it? My obedience to the Lord doesn't matter, does it? All that matters is that I love. That is the danger of an overemphasis on love. On the other hand, if we downplay the importance of love in comparison to other doctrines or other aspects of God's character, we run the risk of having an unbalanced gospel that calls people to repentance merely because they are guilty, vile sinners who are objects of God's wrath. And this is very similar to Jonah's style of preaching, where he basically walked through the city of Nineveh and just said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. What kind of gospel message is that? Basically, all he said to the people of Nineveh was, you are going to die because you're a sinner. That's it. That's all. At its most extreme, a lack of emphasis on love may lead to an attitude that basically says, love is not an essential part of the gospel. Since the most important thing that people need to know is that they need to repent and believe or they go to hell. In both cases, there are certainly elements of truth. Yes, God does love us, and he wants for us to be saved. But on the other hand, yes, God is rightfully angry with us because we have indeed sinned against him. And he has every single right to judge us for that sin. But we have to be careful. We want to make sure that what we we teach what we practice is all that the Word of God says. We cannot say less than what the Word of God says, no matter what we may feel personally. So we must strive for a balanced view of God's love so that we accurately reflect all that God has said concerning himself, his love for us, and his salvation plan for mankind in his perfect Word. Now, it's been a while since we as a church have gone through the book of 1 John. So by way of uh, uh, reminder here is the purpose of First John. The purpose of First John is to assure believers of their salvation status. He writes, uh, John writes here in First John five thirteen. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to assure these believers: Yes, indeed, you have eternal life. But he has a dual purpose in this book as well. Not only is he trying to assure believers of their salvation, he's also writing in order to combat false teachers. And he, do, he does this through a series of tests where he reveals defining marks of a Christian. If a believer passes all the tests that he reveals, then they can have assurance of faith. However... If a person does not pass these tests, it should cause them to pause. It should cause them to wonder, am I actually saved? Now, for some, the answer is no. No, I am not saved. But for others, they have to reexamine their lives and they have to see, where am I deficient? Why am I deficient? And they have to start to strive to live like Christians. And this was critical because the false teachers John was fighting in his day were teaching that Jesus did not have a physical body, but only had the appearance of a physical body. Now, why did they do that? They did that because they believed that all things that were physical were sinful, but all things that were spiritual were good. Therefore, whenever they sinned, they said, it's not me. I didn't sin. My physical body sinned, but because my physical body sinned and my spiritual, uh, but, and my spirit didn't, didn't sin, I'm fine. 
I have no sin. And as a result, they just said, I'm blameless. I don't need the gospel. And John, therefore, has to draw a definitive line in the sand in order to demonstrate the results of genuine faith in the lives of believers. If we are to live as lights in light of eternity, as Pastor Ray taught us a couple weeks ago, we have to know what the gospel says and what our lives ought to look like as a result. We who have received the gospel have been shown the life-changing power of it, and we understand it. So therefore, we should live in light of it. Now, as we look at 1 John 4, 7 to 12, we see three reasons, three reasons why love for one another ought to be a priority in our lives. Three reasons why love for one another ought to be a priority in our lives. And then the first reason why love for one another ought to be a priority in our lives is that love is from God. Love is from God. Verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John begins here in verse 7 by calling his readers beloved. Beloved is not only a term of affection that John uses in order to address these people who he believes are believers, but he writes with, and he opens with the word beloved in order to grab their attention. He grabs their attention. It's very much the way that when a preacher, you'll probably hear me do this uh, this morning, when a preacher wants to grab your attention, he'll say, dear friends, or beloved, or brothers and sisters. So he's trying to grab their attention. And as he grabs their attention, he exhorts them to love one another. Now, this command to love one another, it's, it's a command to, to love those who need to be loved. It's not a love that is is reserved exclusively for those who are lovable. It means that we are to love everyone. We are to love everyone, not just those who are lovable, which is good news for you and me because I don't know about you. I'm not lovable all the time. Okay, But this love, this love is a love that loves other believers regardless of whether love is returned. It's a love that loves regardless of whether love is returned. Oftentimes, when we express love and care towards other people, there is an implicit expectation that they will return the gesture in kind. And when we aren't shown love or consideration in a similar manner, we might not necessarily make a big fuss about it, but how often do we complain to others or sulk? when we haven't received the love that we thought that we deserved from our fellow brother or sister in Christ. It's the attitude of, hey, why aren't you showing me love? I sacrificed for you. Why aren't you sacrificing for me? Or the attitude of, well, if they aren't going to love me, that's fine. I just won't love them or go to them. They'll have to come to me. Right? And you know, this, this attitude of you have to prove it, you have to give it back to me, it's very dangerous within the church because basically what we become is a bunch of grumpy people who just like standing there with our arms crossed and saying, you're not going to love me? I'm not going to love you. I don't care. But that's not the way. That's not the way. 
Right? And, you know, oftentimes, you know, what, is, what does that look like? Well, so, sometimes we get offended when people don't invite us to certain things, and we're just like, hey, I invited you to come out hang out with me. Why don't you invite me to hang out with you? Or how about this? And I'm, I apologize in advance because I'm going to step on some toes here, but why bother go to church retreat? Why should I go to church retreat? Nobody comes to talk to me. No one shows love to me. So why should I go to church retreat? Basically, I can get the same amount of, of interaction at home that I would if I went to retreat. So forget it. Why would I come? No one's going to love me, so I'm not going to love them. That's the kind of attitude that we develop. And what I, would, what I would say to you is that, no, we cannot have that attitude. I understand it is difficult. I understand it's hard. But we have to live with each other in an understanding way. We have to consider the fact that perhaps other people just don't know any better. Perhaps they're very young and they just don't realize the need for us to love one another. Perhaps they just need to grow in consideration for others. And so, instead of taking your ball and going home, since no one will play with you the way that you want, what we strive for is to teach others the right way. To teach others what God has taught us. So that instead of saying, you're not going to love me, forget you, we say, you're not going to love me? All right. I'm going to show you how we ought to love one another. It's dependent upon us to show those who are around us what God wants for us to do. A genuine love and consideration for one another is a love that truly expects nothing in return. If we are shown love in a similar manner, hey, that's great. But if we aren't shown love in the same way, in the same way that we would prefer, that should be okay with us too. Look at what... Look at uh, what John says here at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another. It's not something that everyone else has to do except for the preacher. Right? So when I'm, when I'm preaching this to you, I'm preaching this to myself as well. Right? We are all to love one another. This command, this exhortation for us to love one another is also not a one-and-done act of love either. It's something that we continue to do. We continue to show love to everyone regardless of the circumstances. Now, why? Why are we to show this love, this affection and care towards one another continually, even if it's not reciprocated? Well, John gives us three reasons. First, because love is from God. Love is from God. All that we know about love, as we'll see in verse 9, can be traced back to God. Secondly, we love because everyone who loves is said to be born of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born of God? Well, when we believe upon Christ and we repent of our sins, God adopts us into his family. He makes us, uh, he transforms us from being spiritually dead to becoming spiritually alive. We're born again. That's where that word, where that, that idea comes from. And as we're born again, as we are his spiritual children, we will reflect, we ought to reflect the same char- some of the same characteristics as our heavenly father. And so if we are genuine believers, we will have some of these characteristics that God has. And if God loves us, we too ought to love one another. Now, thirdly, we are to love one another because everyone who loves 
demonstrates that they know God. Everyone who loves demonstrates that they know God. When we love one another, we demonstrate, we prove in the most tangible way that we know God. In Mark chapter 12, we have a scribe. He goes up to Jesus and he's asking Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answers here. He says, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages here in his response to the scribe. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.4 and he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Basically what Jesus is saying here as he handcuffs these two passages together is he saying that those who love God, those who know God, will be those who love one another. You look at those two, two verses that he puts together, there's really, no, you know, the, there's really no connection between the two, at least not on the surface level. Right? And the scribe, he only asked for one answer. He got two in return. Jesus, by handcuffing the two, shows that, there is no, that, that these two things are tied together. They're tied together. When you think about your relationship with God, if you, have a, if you really know who God is and you really love him, you've been saved by him, your love for him will affect the way that you think about other people. When you have a proper understanding of your relationship with God and you love him, that dictates the way that you that the way that you love and care for everyone around you, the vertical affects the horizontal. If you understand properly your love for God, that should motivate you to love others as well. If the vertical is wrong, the horizontal is wrong. If the horizontal is not there, but the vertical is, we have a problem. We have to fix that. Those who know God and love him will be those who love one another. On the contrary, what we see in verse 8 is that the one who does not know God does not, uh, or sorry, the one who does not love is the one who does not know God, for God is love. The importance of God's children demonstrating God's love towards one another is so great that those who do not love are said to be those who do not know God. That seems harsh, doesn't it? So why does John say this? Because God himself is love. God himself is the very definition of love, not the other way around. Those who are his will not only know that love, but they will display it towards one another. It doesn't matter how outwardly religious a person looks. It doesn't matter if they're here every Sunday and if they're here for every single church activity throughout the week. If love for God's people is not demonstrated, in a person's life, then a genuine knowledge of God that results in salvation is not demonstrated. That's what John's saying. If you do not love others, if you do not love God's people, you should really reevaluate where you stand with God because your understanding of who God is has not affected your your, your love for other people. This is, though, 
This is not, though, as it may seem, a call for a works-based salvation where you have to love fellow Christians in order to earn your salvation. And by the way, side note about legalism. Legalism is properly defined as saying that you have to do a certain act in order to be saved. It's not, it's not saying, hey, why are you holding me to the truths of Scripture? Why are you asking me to do what's right? Stop being so literal. Stop being so, quote-unquote, narrow-minded about what the Bible says. That's not legalism. That's just upholding what the Word of God says. Okay, legalism is saying, if you, want to be, if you want to be holy, if you want to be saved, you have to do X, Y, Z in order to do so. And these things are external from what the Scriptures say. So that's what legalism is. And we're not calling for a legalistic-based salvation. We're not saying that in order to be saved, not only do you have to love Jesus, but you also have to earn your way to salvation by loving other people. We're not saying that at all. Okay? But genuine saving faith is, as, or, yeah, genuine saving faith is, as it always has been, given to all who believe by grace through faith. Love, however, is one of the evidences one of the proofs of purchase that confirm that a person has indeed confessed their guilt to God, has turned away from their sin, and believed that Jesus Christ was indeed God's Son who died on the cross for their sins and then rose again on the third day. If we do not love one another, we are missing one of the key evidences that demonstrate that we actually have saving faith. We might have an intellectual understanding of who God is, or at least are okay with the existence of God, but unless that translates to obedience to and love for God, that intellectual understanding of God is useless. It's useless. Now, as we look at verse 7 seven to 8, this leads us to a bit of a problem. This leads us to a bit of a problem. If love for one another is supposed to be a defining characteristic of a Christian... Does that mean that anyone who loves other people are Christians? And if it doesn't mean that they are not Christians, how is it that they're able to love other people? The obvious answer to the first question is no. The ability for people to love one another does not mean that anyone who loves is a Christian. Saving faith in Christ, as was said earlier, is by grace through faith, repenting uh, repenting of sins, and believing in Jesus Christ. Love itself does not save. So what does John mean? What is he talking about? Well, how is it that those who are not Christians are able to love if they're not Christians? People who do not believe in God are able to love others because of how God made man from the very beginning. When God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, he's talking about how he created man in his likeness, how he created man to have certain attributes that he has as well. He allows for mankind to experience and relate with one another in a similar way that he relates to his Son and his Holy Spirit. As a result, mankind is able, to a certain extent, mimic God in what we would call his communicable attributes. And that means that all who are created in God's image are able, to a certain extent, show love to one another. However, again, it alone is not an indicator of salvation. 
love for fellow believers, it loudly proclaims who God is and what he has done. A right understanding of what God has done leads us to right action in response. And one such action is loving one another. Even though it may not be the end-all proof of our salvation, our ability to love one another is a powerful indication of our spiritual health in our Christian walk. The first reason that we ought to love one another is because love is from God. And this leads us to our second reason why love ought to be a priority in our lives, and that is love is exemplified by God. Love is exemplified by God. Verse 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. Another way to think of this is John is basically saying, this is how the love of God was manifested. This is how the love of God was revealed. God's love was revealed to us as the ultimate example of God sending his son, Jesus, into the world. Now, I'm sure probably the majority of you are thinking, well, yeah, of course, that's how the gospel works. Don't you know that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> there is a significance here, though. And we often miss it. We tend to overlook it because usually when we see familiar truths, we're just like, okay, that's great. Give me the, give me the deeper stuff. Right, give me the good stuff. Don't give me this milk. Give me some meat. But there's plenty of meat here that we haven't necessarily thought of all the time. It says here in the NASB that God sent his only begotten son into the world. ESV translates that, translates begotten son as only son. The best translation, however, for this is found in the NIV, which translates uh, this word begotten son as only one and only Son. John's emphasis here is not that Jesus was born of God the Father, which he most certainly was, but, on the, but his focus was on the uniqueness of Jesus to God. While, Jesus, uh, while, while God adopts us into his family, while we, are, uh, our, while we are his children, while we are sons and daughters, Jesus stands far above the rest of us. Because he is the unique son of God who has existed eternally with God from the very beginning. And it was this love. It was this love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that was temporarily severed when our Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross for our sins. Do you know why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not because he was in pain. Of course he was in pain. He had nails driven into his hands and his feet. So he was definitely in pain. But he cried out because for the first time in all of eternity, the Son of God was separated from the Father as he fully identified with sinners. The fellowship that he had known with God, the Father, was gone. As God poured out the full brunt of his wrath upon his son for us. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was innocent. He did not deserve our death. He did not deserve the wrath that we fully deserved. 
but because of his love for us. He took that for us in our place. He endured the wrath of God against all sin on himself. And that should make you wonder, why? Why did Jesus endure all of this? Why did God send his son in the first place? If he was innocent, why did he have to die for anyone? Why couldn't he just be left alone? Well, John explains here at the end of verse 9 that he was sent into this world so that we might live through him. Jesus was sent into the world to live the perfect life that you and I are unable to live and then die on the cross for our sins, rising again in three days so that those who believe in him may live through him. Yes, salvation is free to all, readily and willingly offered to all who would believe and repent of their sins. But make no mistake, it costs God and Jesus much to provide that salvation to us. It costs God the life of his son. It costs Jesus fellowship with his father temporarily. And so when you're tempted not to be loving, or when you're tempted to pursue your own sin, remember what it costs God to save you. Yeah, it's free, but it is so much more significant than that. That's where you need to then trust in the Lord, turn and, and cry out to him, ask him for help, ask him for the Holy Spirit to come and help you defeat sin, help you leave sin behind. You cannot sin anymore because you've died to it. How can it be that we who have died to sin still live in it? We can't. And as we reflect on these things, as we fight sin, we thank God for our salvation and we don't make light of it. Now notice that John says here in verse 10 that the love of God displayed towards us is not one that is motivated by our prior love to him. It says here in verse 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. It's not as if God, standing outside of all, all time, looked and saw that we were all going to choose him, so therefore he chose to love us. Or he didn't look and say like, oh, you, 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 and you are going to love me, so therefore I will love you. It's not that way. God chose us independent of our actions, independent of our own love for him. He chose us when we were sinners. He chose us when we hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, but he still chose to love us. His act of love towards us was one of pure benevolence, though we were, as Paul says in Romans 510, enemies of God. We just mentioned this, but the way by which God's love is ultimately shown, ultimately displayed, is through the sending of his son to die on the cross for our sins. The word that Jesus uses here to describe that is that Jesus was our propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is probably unfamiliar to some of you. It's an older word which means an atoning sacrifice an atoning sacrifice. It is the removal of guilt, of sin, through sacrifice. In the Old Testament, this was done through sacrifices of flawless animals in order to cover sin. 
However, Jesus put an end to the need for any such sacrifice through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14 says this, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sin for sin, one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Previously in Old Testament times, there was no hope of lasting forgiveness. Just a hope that your sins would be covered until next time. If you remember the sacrifice of atonement found in Leviticus 16, it only happened once a year. It only happened once a year. That's not good. Because if it were for you, if it were for me, I'll assure you, merely hours later after that sacrifice was performed, we've probably sinned against someone already. And then you have to wait till next year to have your sins fully atoned. All the sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament, they were merely a covering of sin. Just kind of papering it over for a little bit just delaying the wrath of God. But Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, he did more than that. He did more than that. Rather than covered sin, he removed it. He removed the guilt of sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus took care of all of that because he loved us. And so when we talk about the importance of loving one another, we can't forget about how God ultimately displayed love for us through his son so that we might know him savingly. That's such a blessing and a joy to know that God loved us so much that he was willing to send his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins, then raise him up from the dead so that we could have our sins completely removed. That is such Good news. Such a blessing that we get to experience that. You know, if you're here today and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ and turned away from your sins, consider God's love for you. Consider the great lengths that he took in order to demonstrate his love towards you so that you may be forgiven of your sin. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, God will have to judge sin. Yes, he is a God of love, but he is also a God of justice as well. He has to uphold justice. He will uphold justice, but he is patient. He's patient towards each and every one of you, not wanting for any of you to perish because he loves you. There will be a time, though, when that patience runs out and he will judge. And so I plead with you and I beg with you now to repent of your sins and believe upon Christ and receive the love that he has for you today. For those of you who are here, you have been changed by the gospel. You've been transformed by the life-changing power of the gospel. Remember that these truths are truths that we remind each other of daily. God 
exemplified his love for us ultimately through his son. So who are we to withhold that love from our church family? So far, we've looked at two reasons why we ought to make loving others a priority in our lives. The first being love is from God, and the second being love is exemplified by God. The third reason that we will see is that love is perfected in us. Love is perfected in us. Verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, John's grabbing our attention by saying, Beloved, if God so loved us, they also, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us to the point that he, was, that he willingly sent his son to earth to die for our sins in order to save us, we also ought to love one another. If you know these truths, if your life has been changed by the power of the gospel, then you have no other option, no other response to these truths, but to love one another. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not love other Christians. Now, you'll notice that from the very beginning of this, of this passage, that we've been talking about the love that we're supposed to have for other Christians. This does not mean, however, that you are off the hook when it comes to loving people who are not Christians. Matthew 5, 43 to 48 says this, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, we are still to love those who are unbelieving in the hopes that we might win them over to faith in Jesus Christ. So you're not off the hook. We still have to love others. We still have to show them what the gospel can do in a life. So our responsibility to unbelievers is not missing. It's not non-existent. It is there. But what we're talking about here in 1 John 4, 7 is we're talking about the indicator of saving faith in the lives of believers, and that is a love for fellow believers. John 13, 35 says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is critical. Love is critical. John goes on in verse 12 to say this, no one has seen God at any time. Now, if you're following the train of thought, you're probably thinking, that's random. Where is this coming from? And we're talking about the love of God, and all of a sudden John just says, no one has seen God at any time. So, our, so the question is, what's this doing here? Well, it's unclear whether John is combating a claim from false teachers where they said that they had a special revelation from God and they saw God, or if John is merely talking about how God in general is invisible because he is spirit. There's no clear clues in the context as to what John is referring to here, but it's probably better for us to lean more towards the fact that John is just making a general statement about God's, uh, God's being as being invisible since he's spirit in light of what follows. In light of what follows. We see that 
right after, there's a semicolon there, and it says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, I know you probably didn't come to church to be told about what a semicolon does, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Okay, it's a dependent, what we see here with the semicolon is that there is a dependent clause. The independent clause being that God, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, though, if we love one another, God abides in us. Basically, what John is saying here is that when we love one another, though we may not be able to see God physically, we are assured of the fact that God abides in us. Our acts of love towards one another are ways that we manifest, that we show God's love for us to each other. And in that way, we can, quote unquote, see God. Now, how do we do that? What are the ways that we love one another? Well, we can love one another by providing meals for families who have newborns or who are suffering through major illnesses. We can show love towards one another by supporting our missionaries and caring for them. We can show our love by taking care of those who are suffering, those who, are, uh, who have been displaced by Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. We can show love, even in a very practical way, by just driving people to church or driving them to retreat, um, praying for one another, but not just saying that you're going to pray for them, but actually praying for them. That's how we show love. Okay, actually praying for people, not just saying, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. And then just walk away. No, but actually praying for people, right? That shows love. Taking care of a brother or sister by just taking them out to lunch or dinner uh, or even helping a brother or sister in need financially. Right? These are some of the ways, not all the ways, mind you, some of the ways that we show love towards one another. Now, whenever we receive acts of love like this, we're probably thinking, wow, wow, I'm so touched by the love that the church has for me. I'm so touched by this brother. I'm so touched by the sister that they would show love for me. You should definitely thank them. That would be appropriate. Right? It'd, be th- it'd be appropriate for you to express your thanks for them for sure, but it should also lead you to a second thought. And that second thought should be, wow, thank you, God, for showing me your love for me through this brother, through this sister. Now, not only will we be assured of the fact that God abides in us, that he lives in us through his spirit if we love one another, but we will also see that his love is perfected in us. Now, that's kind of a strange phrase. So what, is the, what does John mean by God's love is perfected in us? Well, another way to translate this is, uh, translate perfected is using the word completed. God's love in us attains its goal as we exercise it within the body of Christ towards one another. The completeness of love is expressed in obedience to God's word as we love one another. We fulfilled exactly what God has intended for us when we love one another. If our love for one another completes what God's plan was for his people, this is why love amongst us here in the body is so important. It is why love is a priority for us as Christians. Yeah, it is difficult to love one another at times. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to offend people. We're going to... We're going to rub people the wrong way. And, yeah, we do sin against each other. Because, well, 
we're a bunch of sinners redeemed by grace in church. So we're still sinners. We will sin against one another. But don't we do the same thing to our own families? We hurt the people that we love the most. So it's not surprising that we at times hurt one another. But brothers and sisters, I encourage you, I exhort you, push past that. Remember that we are to show each other the same love that God showed us. We're to love others as God in Christ has loved us, Ephesians 4.32. And so it should be our goal It should be our aim to do the best that we can to love one another and to forgive one another so that we remind each other and the world around us of the life-saving, the life-changing power of the gospel. It is strong enough to deliver us from our sins. It is strong enough to bond those of us who are perfect strangers together so that we are one family of God. Therefore, we are to love one another. Love certainly has been overemphasized and underemphasized amongst Christians, but that doesn't mean that love is not important for us to know about or practice amongst ourselves. Yes, we should not elevate the importance of love above other doctrines, but we also must remember how critical love is in our obedience to God and our witness of God's great power in our midst. As we saw this morning, love must be a priority in our lives because it is from God. It is exemplified by God, and it is perfected in us. We cannot ignore Christ's command for us to love one another, not just because he said so, but because this is a part of how we proclaim as a church that God has won. We are called to live as lights in light of eternity, and part of that, part of the way that we shine that life forth is our willing obedience to love one another, no matter what the circumstance. So, brothers and sisters, let us love one another. Let's pray. Our Father, it is at times difficult for us to love one another. We confess that to you. We acknowledge that to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to strive to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to know you more so that our knowledge of you will affect the way that we interact with one another. Help us, Lord, to love each other, to exhort each other, to challenge one another, to live as we ought to in this life so that in our righteous living, in our love for one another, we might proclaim the saving power of the gospel, the life-changing power of the gospel, so that those who do not know you will see what the gospel can do, that they might come to saving faith in you. For those who are here this morning who do not yet know you, we pray, Lord, that you would impress upon their hearts just how much you love them. But at the same time, how much they need you. Father, we pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would help them realize that they are desperately in trouble with you here this morning, but that you are willing to forgive them of their sin if they place their faith in Christ. Father, we pray that you would save 
those who are yours this morning. Help us, Lord, to grow in our love for one another. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention here this morning. Uh, I would definitely encourage for you to think about these things and to strive to love one another, or even to think about how you can practically uh, love one another this week. Um, Have a blessed week, and uh, see you next week.